Well, it's time to open our Bibles. It's time to open the Word and uh, get into the work of studying Scripture together as a family, but also as um, Christians committed to truth. Matthew 12 is where we're looking again. This is uh, part two to some a passage that I didn't anticipate making into a two-parter, but it kind of became one, and I think it's being moved along by what the Holy Spirit wants us to pull over and park and look at, at least for a second week here. And it's under the theme of discernment, discernment, discerning between good and evil, right and wrong, black and white, those who are saved, those who are unsaved, a good tree or a bad tree, a a person who is a Christian or a person who is a duplicitous viper, um, a good storehouse or someone with good treasure in their hearts and someone who has evil in their hearts. It is uh, metaphors on display to show the difference between whether you will stand in judgment or whether you will be crushed to eternal damnation in judgment. All of this is uh, what the text will give us, but it's in the larger context of accusation. Jesus has been accused of being a Satanist. There are other accusations. There's eight in all that I um, sort of see in the text here. He's been accused of being a Satanist, someone who healed a a man born blind and mute and who was demon-oppressed and had all these problems that Jesus instantaneously, comprehensively, and uncontestably delivered him from. Complete healing, complete deliverance, salvation, I would assume, to this man. And yet, he is accused of doing it by the power of the devil. He's accused, basically, as the section that Jesus is Teaching from here, he's accused of being a hypocrite. He's accused of being the ultimate opposite of what he says he is. Verses 22 to 32 is Jesus as healer and saying, I'm the Messiah because I heal. I'm bringing heaven to earth. And you have Pharisees who are there who are saying, no, no, you're of the devil. And Jesus says, you're committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit by doing that, by saying that. You're doing these things by the work of Beelzebul. And so Jesus is saying, no, that is damning you to hell. Jesus flips the script on the accusation. He's accused of being empowered by the devil And he's saying, Pharisees, you've crossed a line and you've gone too far. And he gives a sentence, a divine sentence of judgment on them for that accusation. And in doing so, he damns people pre-death. It's a pre-death damnation. It's pretty heavy, but we've talked about it a couple weeks ago, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's the context for where Jesus opens up teaching on being a hypocrite or not. He's basically saying you have good trees and you have bad trees. You you have one or the other. There's gradations in terms of how people are doing spiritually. We understand that. Some people are doing well and some people are struggling. But at the end of the day, you you have the damned and you have the redeemed. You have those who are of Christ and those who are of the devil. 
And so the Pharisees have made this accusation that I am of the devil. I am the ultimate hypocrite. I am a wolf in sheep's clothing on steroids. I'm claiming to be Messiah. And you're saying, Pharisees, that I am from the devil. And so the crowds listening in are in the courtroom setting of this moment. And they're having to decide who who it is that they're going to follow. Do you follow Jesus, who's the healer? Where does that power source come? Or do you follow the Pharisees where all of your tradition, all of your upbringing, all of your background, all of your homeschool education, I'm not dogging homeschool education, I'm just trying to say there is a strong sense of family influence that comes in this moment where those crowds are faced with, am I going to see the Messiah in Jesus for who he is, or am I going to follow the traditions of these Pharisees and fall away? Am I going to follow those who are of the damned or am I going to follow Messiah? Because it is one or the other. It's the crossroads. And what Jesus is unlocking here in our passage with verses 33 through 37 is he's unlocking the the idea, the theme that this crowd can discern between whether Jesus is true or false whether the Pharisees are speaking truth or lies. We as Christians are armed by the Holy Spirit with the power to discern truth and error, right and wrong. We're given that gift by the Holy Spirit to see into what's wrong with our world and to turn people to Christ, a world that's flipped on its head, a world that's fallen into deeper and deeper spiraling sin. We know of the last couple of weeks, the shootings that have been in the news. Um, the one in Texas, actually there have been three in Texas, I think. There was a list in our prayer list for eldership that was, I don't know, 10 or 12 um, you know, long in terms of different areas of our country where there were shootings. There were three major ones in the last several weeks. But the one in Texas that I'm thinking of where the, the children were killed and slaughtered by an 18-year-old, where, where does that come from? Does that come from a lack of gun control laws? I'm not just trying to get your attention, but just do I have your attention? Where that comes from is a sinful heart, a sinful heart that's depraved and enslaved by sin, um, a, a man that needs Jesus, a man that needs the Lord who will face the consequences of judgment one day for what he did. But even behind the scenes, thinking about the, the, the stuff that he was doing and processing in internet pornography and private um, during the pandemic time, during the isolation where people are isolated with a screen, filling their heart with filth, that then turns into murder. It's horrible. It's horrible, but that's what's wrong. And we have the mind of Christ. We have the scriptural glasses to look through and see our culture and call it out for what it really is and see that sin is what is pouncing on people and hurting people. It's just a lead in to say we need to be those who can discern And why do we need to discern? Do we need to just stand for truth, for truth's sake, to say we are the defenders of the truth? We are the guardians of the truth. Well, we are, and we defend the gospel. We contend earnestly for the faith out of obedience and scripture. We're guarding the trust. We're 
Um, we're earthen vessels who have this treasure inside of us, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, but we do so to lead others to Christ. That's what Jesus is doing. He's calling out the Pharisees. He's stripping back the layers of hypocrisy that we talked about last time so that he can show the crowds who he really is. The accusation is false. We as Christians will be falsely accused. We don't defend ourselves. We're not even defending the truth to defend ourselves. We defend truth so that people can see the difference between what is true and what is false. When the Christians are called crazy, when the Christians are called angry, when the Christians are called hateful, when the Christians are called extremist, we need to be able to show people the truth, show people the scripture, show people Jesus. We take the accusation and we we return it with truth. And that's what Jesus is putting on display here. He's showing us how to use a diagnostic, a diagnostic to strip back the layers of hypocrisy so that people can come to the truth, come to the light, come to Jesus. It's always been this way. Even in the Old Testament, people were called to call out what is false, to call out the false teachers, to... um, call out false prophecies so that they could truly worship Yahweh, worship God. And then in the New Testament, uh, the church is called to defend the truth, to call out false teachers, to call out lies, to stand for truth. Why? To evangelize a lost world. Listen, I was shown a clip of kids being indoctrinated. It's gay pride month. Used to be a day, used to be a parade. Now it's a month. And kids are being indoctrinated and brainwashed under drag queen-like festivals and sitting there, little kids. I mean, these adults will be held to account for what they did to these kids, exposing them to things that they ought not be exposed to. It's wrong. And I'm not trying to just save America or save things through politics, but I'm saying that we need to stand for the truth to evangelize children. That's why we're having 250 or 60 kids here tomorrow under the theme of the sanctity of human life, where people are fearfully and wonderfully made. If this pulpit doesn't call out the difference between um, truth and error, life and death, where will we hear it? We have to be the preachers. We have to be the emissaries of the gospel. Men and women, boys and girls, teenagers going out, holding the torch of life to say, Jesus is real. God's word is authoritative, sufficient, and powerful. And it lays it out straight in terms of how we're supposed to think about our culture and our world. So people will go to heaven. So people will know Christ. Well, Christ is stripping back layers of hypocritical skin, basically exercising discernment through this diagnostic. And the first step in the diagnostic was for him to set it in verse 33. Look at this. Every or either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. There's a sense of responsibility here. The tree has to think about what it is. Am I a good tree making good fruit or am I a bad tree making bad fruit? That's, that's what's going on here. Jesus is saying, look inside. What kind of tree are you? Are you a tree that's alive producing life or are you a tree that's dead that only produces, produce death? 
If you know I live across the street, I had five trees recently felled. They were the spruce trees that were beetle-eaten. And my wife, it's funnier when she's in the, in the room. I don't think she, I think she was first hour. But we had a nice little marital debate because I was trying to hang on and, you know, pray for those trees to survive. Just because I'm cheap and I didn't want to pay for having trees felled. And, you know, is there a little green there? So, you know, is it really dead? Will the wind knock it over? And, you know, people had to intervene on me and say, no, they're dead. We're taking the trees down. And they did. And it was wonderful. But, but, um, you know, a tree is either alive or it's dead. And a lot of people are like um, me and, and, and thinking a tree could be alive when it really shows itself to be dead. We could be looking at each other going, I think that person's alive or I think I'm alive and you're all the way dead. You're either born again or you're still in darkness. There's a bifurcation here. There's good trees that push out literally good fruit and bad trees that are pushing out bad fruit. They make bad fruit. For the tree is known by its fruit. This is one of several analogies. There are several analogies that are given here in this diagnostic, and um, they're helpful ones. But the second analogy is the one of vipers. This is where Jesus moves from setting the diagnostic to confronting through the diagnostic. You brood of vipers. This is, you know, what our culture calls hate speech. You brood of vipers. You, You set of snakes, you venomous snakes. That's what Jesus says to the Pharisees. He's pushing back on them to reach out with compassion to the crowds, saying your progeny is, you're the progeny of, of vipers. You're the progeny of Satan himself, the serpent of, of the garden. You're, you're, part of the, you're part of the prince of the power of the air. You're this family that is venomous. Venom is a picture of what's coming out of the mouth. This is a context about words coming out of the mouth. And think of venomous words coming out of the mouths of these Pharisees who had just committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They had just spoken words to their own eternal damnation. They're a brood of vipers, a family of snakes. And so he's calling it out there. This brings us to point three. Point three, Jesus evaluates people by the diagnostic. So he moves from a setting the diagnostic to confronting through the diagnostic to an evaluation. This evaluation is based on the end of verse 34. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. How can, earlier, how can you speak good when you are evil? There's going to be a real contradiction here when what, what you're saying on the outside is that you're good, but, but on the inside, there's evil. And what's on the inside is connected to the speech that you say. There's like an invisible Um, line or sort of cord to your heart with what you say. And out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. It is is literally the mission control center. It's the soul of who you are. It's who you are behind the scenes, behind closed doors, in the dark, when nobody's looking around. That's your heart. That's your identity. But eventually what's on the inside will come out. And not just when you hit your hammer, hit your thumbnail with a hammer and it's like what comes out or like I did drop a kayak on your toe that you know those are some defining moments for your spiritual life but it's more what you love it's what you talk about it's what you desire all those things will be out of the overflow of your own heart and mouth so um, 
Jesus is using these analogies like tree and vipers and hearts to show us who we are so we can diagnose ourselves and we can diagnose others around us. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now we have verse 35. Here's the evaluation. A good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. So this is tying in with out of the overflow, the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The, the heart here now is viewed as a storehouse, a stockpile, a reservoir. What's going on in there? The word good is used three times in a row. It's repetition here, which I think is important. Good person, good treasure will bring, will literally ekbale, will flow out good. And then by contrast, Evil, evil, evil. And the evil person out of his evil treasure, his evil stockpile or storehouse, will ekbale, will, will bring forth evil. It's one or the other. It's one or the other. You're either of Christ or you are of Satan. You are either saved or you are unsaved. What's firing on the inside will burst forth on the outside. Good, 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 or evil, evil, evil. Well, you got to say this. How can Jesus call anyone good? Because we know we're born sinners. Even as Christians, we have sin. We have what Romans seven fourteen says. The principle of remaining sin is still operative within us. The rich young ruler went up to Jesus and said, Oh, good teacher. And Jesus said, How can anybody... Say that, you know, someone is good unless they are God. Only God is good. In Matthew nineteen sixteen, uh, the version of this is, Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who is good. And if you would enter eternal life, or if you would enter life, keep the commandments. What's Jesus doing? He's making this distinction. He's creating the diagnostic there in the conversation saying, you just called me good. Are you good? Look inside your heart. Evaluate your own heart. You're trying to butter me up. Oh, good teacher. What TED talk do I need to follow to have eternal life? I've got all these riches and wealth and stuff and I've got it all together. So now you're good. Show me the good way so that I can have eternal life. I want that too. And he's saying, do you know who you're even talking to? Only God is good. Hint, hint, hint. Like what's happening in your heart with that statement? Ultimately, he told the rich young ruler to sell all he has and follow him. And it made him sad because he was clinging to stuff instead of seeing his own sin and relying on Christ for grace. He's testing the man's discernment. We're all sin drenched. Psalm 14 quote, is quoted by Paul in Romans 3. Psalm 14, 1 to 3, the fool said in his heart, there's no God. It says, they are corrupt. They, are abominable. they do abominable deeds. There's no one who does good. I mean, this is the sinfulness of sin. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there's any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside together. They've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Let's change the gun laws. That'll make it right. No, we're all sinners. And if you don't have Christ, you are lost in a sinfulness of sin, a sea of sinfulness. And there's no way out but Christ. And when you come to Christ, the vice grip of sin is unhinged. And you can believe and you have new affections, new loves, new desires, new hearts. Are you still a sinner? Yes. 
but you're saved by grace and you got new motivations and new drives and you love Christians and you love community and you love holiness, even if you hate your sin that still plagues you in your life. It's not the dominating influence that it used to be because you're new in him. That's what Jesus is talking about here. The good person is the saved person out of his good treasure brings forth good. What does that mean? When you become a Christian, you have good treasure. We forget that we have good treasure, right? Sadly, we have a resource that is a river of living water that will never run dry. Do you understand that? You have a resource. You have a bank account that keeps populating itself. It's amazing. I don't know if you're like me. You look at your bank account on your phone like, hey, where are we at? What's going on? And sometimes, to my amazement, I'm surprised that I have more than I thought I had. And it's amazing. But as a Christian, you have endless supply and resource of the Lord's goodness in your life by the Holy Spirit. It's like finding out that you have 20,000 more airline miles than you thought that you had, and then you can buy the ticket. We, we need to resource ourselves in God and say, God, I'm relying upon you. I'm availing myself of you for your power, your strength, your input into my life. Verse recall, a word of, of discernment into an issue. I can speak to issues. I can think through how to answer this or that in my life by the power of the Holy Spirit, those good things are pouring forth from my life rather than an evil person out of an evil treasure will bring forth evil, only evil continually. It's evil, 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 or good, good, good. When God saves somebody, he saves them with new affections and the fruit of the Holy Spirit and these things. Well, you say, well, what about my sin that I'm dealing with even in my words. Well, I, I looked up this book that I would recommend. I pulled it off my shelf. I'd recommend for you to read it because, you know, I struggle with my words. I'm a verbal processor. I'm always needing to be held in check. And uh, I just, I speak for a living. I, I'm a talker. But we're all, we're all talking all the time. And, and this book is called War, War, War of Words. War of Words by Paul David Tripp. I would recommend it highly. It's great. And talks about how we're, we're in this sinful world and it, it affects the way we interpret what people say to us or, or, or what we say to them. And so the battle is not now, once paradise was lost, once Satan um, injected sin, the temptation of sin into our world and then Adam and Eve fell and sin, you know, the sin curse was put in our world, God's facts became... Um, sort of the, the, the battleground in our lives because everything comes down to how we're interpreting God's facts. Listen to what Paul David Tripp says. He says, in the moment in the garden, we also see an interpretation of life differently from God's um, for the first time. Recognize what Satan's doing here. He's taking the same set of facts God interpreted for Adam and Eve and giving them a radically different spin. If his interpretations believed, the listener would no longer think it was good, right, or necessary to obey God. In fact, one could say if the serpent's interpretation were right, it would be stupid to continue to obey God. Never before on earth had there been an interpretation opposing God's. Everything Adam and Eve understood about the world had been based on the interpretation God had given them. Today, we live in a confusing world. Uh, I mean, and this was written probably in 2000 or something, but 20 years later. Listen to the statement. Today, we live in a confusing world of many interpretations. 
People are interpreting things so weirdly now. That's the malaise and fog of sin that's in this war of words. It's not that God's word changed. It's not that truth and facts changed. It's that sin fogs up the glass for how we see and hear things as people say them. They're distorted. Most of them do not recognize the authority of God or operate with any desire to view life in a way that is consistent with his word. This raises an extremely important point. You and I do not respond to people or circumstances of our lives on the basis of facts. Our responses are based on the way we interpret those facts. So what do we do as Christians? As Christians, we have to rely upon the repository of the storehouse of the Holy Spirit in our lives to be gracious to interpret well, to listen, to not presume, to be kind and gentle. Evil people will not do that. Evil people will respond in evil, and that will be the overflow of their hearts, and it will be observable. Treasure is is where we get the word thesaurus. We have a treasury like the treasury of words of life in our hearts versus those who have evil treasure, evil expression, Empty commitments, empty promises. It's amazing. Things are so distorted. Let me, let me give you an example of how twisted things are in our culture. Good, good, good. Save, save, saved versus evil, evil, evil. Just think about what, who what people are willing to follow in our culture these days. People dressed in macabre. People dressed weird. People who, who have odd, um, obvious character flaws that are on display. And people go... I want to follow that person. Why? Because they have the same storehouse. They're like, look, that person's storehouse looks like it will fill my storehouse. And so I want what they want, so I'll follow them as opposed to following the Lord. So many people follow narcissists or plastic people or people who are grotesque to their own demise. All right, point four. So far, Jesus set the diagnostic. He confronts with the diagnostic. He evaluates with the diagnostic, verse 35, and then he warns with the diagnostic. He warns the people in view of the diagnostic. The warning here is severe. It's judgment day. It's the warning in view of judgment day. How many people thought about judgment day so far today? Well, it's not something we always regularly think about. In fact, I don't think about judgment day enough, but it's a terrifying thing to think about. I tell you on the day of judgment, verse 36, people will give account for every careless word they speak. That's terrifying to me. Every, some interpretations, idle word you speak, you will be giving an account for that. I remember a preacher who I sat under, he was a guest preacher down at Grace Community Church, and he was speaking on a Sunday night or something. And out of all that I sat under at that great church for those years, that this illustration stood out to me. It was back when there were overhead projectors and it was, they had an overhead for the pulpit so it could put slides up. And he put the overhead projector you know, lens on the, on the pulpit and he said, on the day of judgment, you're gonna be standing there and it's like all of what you've done is gonna be broadcast up on the big screen before the Lord. I mean, it's incredible to think about every careless word They speak. What that's saying is everything out of a person's heart will be on display. 
R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul in his commentary, spoke of a grad student that came to him for seminary training. He was a student from Harvard. He studied physiology of the brain, so he was brilliant. And this man tied his um, sort of physiological expertise and study of the brain to Judgment Day. He said, the brain's an amazing thing. It's a gigantic computer. records every thought, impression, incident in your life, awake or asleep. It's indelibly etched on the brain. He said, I read in scripture on the last day of judgment, all the tongues will be silenced. There'll be no protest as the whole world is brought before God and shown to be guilty. He said, I think God is going to take each person's brain and push play on the control so that the brain will pour out all of its memory. We'll stand there listening to ourselves, condemn ourselves. It's crazy. Say, is that going to happen for Christians? Well, I'm going to read some scripture in a little bit that talks about how we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There's a great white throne passage. There's also the Bema seat um, judgment for Christians, 1 Corinthians 3. Hey, wooden stubble, it's going to be burned, yet we're going to be saved as through fire. What is that going to mean? What does that mean? I don't know. Terrifying. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're bought with the blood of Christ. But at the same time, we're held accountable for every idle word, every word that's careless and spoken. How many words do we speak from good morning to good night? We have uh, an average 30 conversations each day. 50 to 60 page, pages could be written every day with what we say. 100 books a year at 200 Words, a book, or 200 pages a book. No matter where you live, every day, you're speaking. I speak more than I should. I talk all the time. I'm a talky person. There are more quiet people, but you're all talking. You're all speaking all the time. So what makes us human is that we talk. Certain members of our family believe our dogs talk, but they don't. Our lives are wordy. The core of our being is shown by what we say. It's the overflow, that word overflow. It's this gushing original word. It's, it's, it's the idea of the overflow of our hearts, the abundance of our heart. Verse 34 again is revealing every careless word is revealing where our hearts are. It was revealing where the Pharisees' hearts were. Think about this. All of what we're saying today is in view of judgment one day. It's terrifying. The judgment day verbiage here is actually put at the end of the verse. On the day of judgment is at the end of verse 36 for emphasis. Noah Webster, the father of American scholarship and education, with a name synonymous with the dictionary, as you know. Born and li- he lived in the late 1700s, early 1800s. He graduated from Yale University. I think he was, he was brought into Yale at 16. He was super brilliant. He was recruited by Alexander Hamilton to be the editor of the Federalist Party newspaper. And he served as an advisor to the president. Very, very deep, very, very smart man. When he was asked what the most significant thought he ever had, without hesitation, he said, the thought of standing before God. Accountability, judgment is coming for what we say. 
James 3.1 says a stricter judgment is for teachers. How terrifying. How terrifying. James 3.5, though, says the tongue is a small member, a small organ, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Good fruit, good words will mean you're a good tree. You're a regenerate heart. Bad words means bad fruit in an unregenerate heart. What does that look like? Think about some of the words, the descriptions of words that the Bible uses. Let's just go through a few. Angry, lustful, cursing, flattering speech, foolish speech, prideful speech, hateful speech, vulgar speech, gossiping words, critical words, worldly words, immoral words, crude words. Lying words, damaging words, depressing words, complaining words, arrogant words, hateful words, swearing words, divisive words, all expose a battery of a heart. You have to guard your heart so that this is not the overflow of the abundance of your heart coming through your mouth because we're accountable to all of it. I mean, the, I was showing my boys how algorithms now are embedded, and we know this has been forever, but it's becoming more and more sophisticated. Our devices are listening to us. They're figuring us out and they're baiting you to sin on deeper levels. One swipe, two swipe, three three swipes deep, four swipe, worse, worse, worse. It's almost a picture of the heart going worse and worse and worse and worse as as you flood it with sin. But then eventually it will come out to guard against that. Words matter. You've heard the old saying, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. As a little kid in grade school, I thought that's not true because I used to, on the playground, get in with my best friend. We would get in wrestling matches and some um, fist fights at the end of school every day. We had kind of a love-hate relationship, but we were friends for like seven years. Every day, we would just kind of have a scuffle. But one day, it went from, you know, being rough and tumble to uh, words. And we, we said some angry, hurtful words at each other. It's funny, you know, you can punch each other in the face and forget about it, shake hands. But if you say something against someone that pierces the heart, it can become unforgettable. And my parents um, heard about this. They saw the impact of our words, both parents, because we both went home to our parents hurt and they called, they were friends, so they called an intervention, a parental intervention. And we had to confess the words that we had spoken to each other. And where, you know, we had been in fistfights and just shaking hands. This was like a tearful embrace. Unbelievable. Third grade. Words hurt. Words are real and, and they're indicting. The words that we breathe out through our larynx. Are not just, it's not just a, um, a practice of physiology. It's spiritual. It's revelatory of our hearts. Who can say that they aren't guilty of this word list that I just read? No one. No one. We're all guilty. We're all needing grace. So who can stand in judgment? Who will survive this judgment? Look at it again. 
Um, we're going to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless words. How can we stand? You can't make a C minus and get into heaven. We have to get a 100% to go to heaven. We have to be completely holy to get to heaven. You can't say that, you know, I, my good words outran my careless words, and so I make it to heaven. Let's look at the last point to answer that question in verse 37. Not only does Jesus set the diagnostic, confront with the diagnostic, evaluate with the diagnostic, warn with the diagnostic, now he leaves the the weight of the diagnostic on the person. He leaves people responsible in terms of the diagnostic. The responsibility is on you or on me for what we did with Christ in this lifetime. It's what the Pharisees failed at doing, they did not give their hearts to Christ. They accused Christ and they crossed a line where they were given over to reprobation. We, on the other hand, have the opportunity to give our whole lives to Christ and be saved. Listen to the emphasis here in verse 37. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Say, how can I last outlast this? I mean... There's no way I can make up for bad speech with good speech and and make it okay. A lot of people believe in that, by the way. They believe in a works-oriented salvation where their good works will outweigh their bad works so they'll go to heaven. Their good, let's replace it, the good words will out... We'll, we'll, we'll cover the bad words. I'll do more good things. I'll speak more good things. And so my bad things will be covered in heaven. That's a lot like, like last night I walked into my backyard and had a couple boys in my backyard sleeping out, camping out. And it was like 11 o'clock. So I'm sneaking up on them, not to scare them, just to make sure they're doing all right. And I'm um, just looking in, you know, and I hear this crackle across the street and it's a moose. It's like a nice, pretty healthy sized adolescent, late adolescent moose. It's uh, Alaskan sunshine, 11 o'clock. And that thing's looking kind of, uh, kind of looking at me, kind of, kind of looking a little edgy. And I'm thinking, you know what? I'm all right. I'm good. Just walking by the moose. And he's just kind of like, he's a little too interested in me. And I'm, I'm beginning to play scenarios, you know, like, okay, it's going to charge or bluff or whatever. Where am I going to run? Well, if you don't do it right, you're really not going to outrun the moose. And so you got to think that through. Same thing with a bear, you know? And so I put some distance there and, you know, I made it out alive. But, <laughs> but with God, we have to measure things in terms of the danger of the fact that we cannot outrun his wrath with good works or good words. There's not enough good that can outrun or buy off God. So what does this mean? What does this mean? We're going to be judged by every idle word, and it's by your words you're justified. The word justified means to be covered. The word justified, in my earlier analogy, is to make an A+. God gives you an A. Listen, I was never able to make A's. I'm not an A student. I'm not a precise person in that way. I'm a, I'm a B minus. And when my wife would redo my paper in grad school, it became an A. But I'm not an A plus. A's have to be given to me. It's a gifting of an A. It's like, wow, I was given an A. I didn't earn an A. You don't earn a 100 and go to heaven. You can't do it. So how do we get there? Well, the best way to see this verse is to explain it this way, by your words, meaning by what your words are revealing about the condition of your heart, 
you will be justified. If these are good words, if you have a spiritual life that is overflowing out of the abundance of a transformed, renewed, saved heart, then you're justified. You get 100%. You go to heaven. By your words, you'll be condemned. If you're a condemned person, your speech is condemning you, your speech is indicting you, your speech is revealing that you are not converted, then you'll be condemned. It's as simple as that. By your words, meaning by the condition of your heart, if you have a saved heart, you will be justified. You will be covered. Your bank account will be paid in full. It'll be 100% full. You get 100% grade and you go to heaven. That's what that means. Versus an unregenerate heart that says, I'm going to gamble with God. I'm going to just try to fake it and see if I'm going to make it to heaven. And you'll be condemned. This is ground truth. This is getting to the core of things. In Romans 14, 10, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. 1 Corinthians 3, 12, if anyone builds on a foundation of gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will be manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what work, a sort of work each one has done. Revelation 20, 11 and 12, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away, meaning there's no more time in heaven. No place was found for them. Verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were open and another book was open, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the book according to what they had done. Everything comes down to this being up to what we do in our lifetime with the Lord. God is sovereign over opening hearts, but the responsibility that Jesus places is on the hearer, is on the crowd. Choose, this, choose you this day whom you will serve. Will you serve Christ or the Pharisees, religion or the Messiah? He's stripping away everything. Saying, don't gamble with God. Your words reveal the status of your heart. They reveal the choice that you've made. They reveal the condition of your heart. Give yourself to Jesus. Trust him fully. Discernment lays it out that clearly. You either discern this as true or you are hardening your heart away from Jesus. Jesus. 